Well, as I'm sure many of you have perhaps experienced in your lives, there are many competing strategies about how to grow a Christian church. And as a pastor, Facebook and other uh, vehicles have figured out who I am and they try and market things to me to try and identify how we ought to grow the church. And I'm constantly bombarded by all kinds of things. And if I only implement this visitor plan, that our visitor retention rate will go up from, from 10% to 100%. And everybody who comes to the church will stay in the church and, and the church will grow. And, and the implication is that we'll have money and, and everything else. And this is what we see in our society as well. And sadly, it is something that, that is appealing to some. And I'm assured that if I only change those things, I, I change the lighting, I, I improve our music, I, I, I paint the church, or I improve the outside, make it more attractive, that these things are the things that will make the big difference. And our church will just explode in growth if we do these things. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, painting the building or improving the environment, or adding a sound system, or even other musicians to the body of Christ. But I am here today, and I have a a, a responsibility from God to tell you how biblically, biblically we are instructed to see the church grow. You may grow your business by marketing and by seeking out an audience in those ways, but as a biblical church, we're not interested in building up a great, great, great fountains of money. We're not interested in luring in people with gimmicks. As Mark Dever has put it, he said, we believe what brings people in is what will keep people in. And that's why, honestly, as we've begun here and as we continue, we are simple in our worship. We desire for you and for everyone who comes into the, 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 the bounds here of CRBC To be attracted, not by what you see up here, but what you hear. By the word of God being preached. Working with the Holy Spirit to convict, convert, to challenge, to change. The good news about Jesus Christ is what the church is about. That's it. What's interesting about all of these man-centered church growth strategies is that this is something that has plagued the church For all of history, Jerome, the church father, did not have the internet. He did not get the spam that I got. But it's interesting, there is a letter of his from 394 AD, a little while ago. And he writes to a young elder named Nepotian. And Jerome was rebuking the churches of his day for putting more interest in buildings than the proper selection of their church leaders. He said this, Many build churches nowadays. Their walls and pillars of glowing marble. Their ceilings glittering with gold. Their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. What's old is new. Well, I believe that the real answer to seeing church growth is quite simply the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit is to raise up men in the church to lead. It is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that equips and empowers leaders to preach and to teach and to serve as deacons in the body of Christ for the people of God. 
But that then necessitates the question, where do you find these men? How do you prepare and disciple them? Our selection of leadership in the local church cannot be based on worldly values. If you're thinking about it, some of you in the professional world, I used to have some responsibility in this regard. You're looking for people who will be leaders in your business and your organization. So oftentimes the, the list of things includes things like charisma. Is this person really likable? Do they, are they dynamic in front of other people? Are they intelligent, highly intelligent, many degrees? Are they strategic or innovative in their thinking? Are they creative? Are they, do they have a track record? Do they have a track record of financial or business success? And sometimes those sorts of ideas, even though there is some crossover, sometimes those are the ideas that come into the selection of leadership in the church. And what ends up happening is a lot of churches seek a CEO type or an administrative board member. But instead, as we're going to look today in this passage that the instruction that's given to us from the scriptures is different. Primarily, for a Christian servant, for anyone to serve in the body of Christ, the qualifications come down to godly character. Godly character. For elders, there is one requirement that is different in particular, and that is that they need to be apt to teach, or they be, must be able to, to proclaim the gospel. But, but in both the lists that I read earlier in 1 Timothy 3, the, the character qualities, the godly character qualities, are what qualify a man to lead in the body of Christ. Too often churches are driven by unbiblical ideas of leadership and church government. They import worldly values in their selection of leaders and look for dynamic, larger-than-life personalities. But church government, according to the scriptures, is much simpler. It's not a dictatorship. And it's not a democracy. It's a Christocracy. We're servants all ultimately under the rule of Jesus Christ. And when we look at elder candidates or diaconal candidates, the men that lead us need to have some ability intellectually. But the primary characteristics that we're looking for are those Christ-like characteristics. Those indeed Christ-like attitudes and actions. This morning we're going to look at the character qualities that both elders and deacons share as the Bible describes them. And we're going to look at this foundational passage. This is one of those classic passages on uh, what an, a deacon and an elder is. There's another passage that speaks in, in Titus a little bit more, but this one is specifically um, encompassing the deacon. We're going to look at this under two simple headings. First of all, the biblical pattern of the servant deacon. And then secondly, with three subpoints, the three main biblical qualities of deacons. The, 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 the three main qualities are desire, orthodoxy, and exemplary character. Now, I know some of you are here and you're thinking, uh, I want to I challenge you a bit in your thinking. Because I know, I know some of us, and I've been in your situation before, think, well, okay... This sermon is really directed at our church officers or our church officer candidates, Jonathan, and those perhaps in the CRBC leadership training group. So those are the guys that need to pay attention. I can afford to tune out at this point. 
And my response to this is, yes, Jonathan ought to be paying attention, brother. But all of you should as well. And I want to explain why. Because I think this is important for you and for, for all of you as a congregation. First of all, if you're male and Christian, why ought this passage on leadership not to apply and be directed to you? We heard the imperative in the law. Have you considered whether you can serve the congregation in a spiritual office? You're not here as a consumer. None of us are. We're here to serve. But I would say this, even if you're not a man that is called to ministry, a Christian man, or if you are a Christian woman here this morning, let me be clear. This passage describes the character and expectations of a Christian, full stop, of a Christian. Every church member is called to live according to these same standards as the men in pastoral ministry. Elders and deacons are meant to be examples to the flock, men to be imitated. In other words, the biblical instruction here on how you should select your leaders is also how you should desire to live as Christians before God. If nothing else, it should all convince us of our need and our desperate need of God's help to live a holy life. I remember even when I was being considered for ministry, it was a humbling passage. We read through all of these things. I want to say this also to the singles in our congregation. For example, to unmarried women. If you want to look for what you want to look for in a man, an actual list. I know we all have our little lists in the back of our heads. But if you have a desire to be married, if you want an actual biblical list, and it's not he's got to be taller than me, or he has to have a good sense of humor, or be good looking, then this is it. This is a biblical list of the things that you as unmarried women and unmarried men, in some sense, some of these things are transfer obviously over, should be looking for. And there's instruction here for the wives in verse 11 in particular. So it's relevant. But you might be sitting there this morning and thinking, you know what, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Well, I want to tell you that this text also applies to you. And you also need to hear, because there's gospel in it. Because, first of all, what you see here before you is a list of what a Christian is supposed to be like. Supposed to look like. And you can see, as you read this, that the Bible doesn't allow you to be a hypocrite. Doesn't allow Christians to live a double life. One that is different in public and in private. It's interesting how many of these sorts of things apply in the public and private sphere. The Bible demands a high moral standard for leadership in public as in private. And men that don't meet this standard do not belong in ministry. And congregation of CRBC, you have a responsibility. But if there are men that no longer meet this, that are in leadership, it is part of your responsibility to remove them. But there's also good news in this. Because left to our own devices and our own efforts, none of us can meet these standards. None of us can meet the moral purity 
outside the transforming power of the gospel through Jesus Christ, which turns wicked men into godly men. Well, let's consider, first of all, then, the biblical pattern for a servant deacon. To understand what a deacon is, you need to understand some of the biblical pattern that's come before us. Why do we need deacons? You've heard Jonathan and and John have, have expounded some things to us already, but let's look a little further into the scriptures. Now, essentially, to be a Christian is to be like Christ. And so, we got to begin with the example of Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at Jesus. Turn with me in your scriptures to uh, John chapter 13. Now, the context here is that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, <clears throat> he, uh, he and his disciples had made their way from Bethany to Jerusalem. And they were going into the upper room where they were celebrating the Passover and the first ever Lord's Supper. The journey was along a, a dusty road. And when they arrived at the upper room, it would have been customary for the host of their home to provide a servant. And usually the lowest of the low servants. We're not talking about the butler. We're talking about the footman. We're talking about the one who is the lowest of the low. And they would, they would have gone about the menial dirty, but very practical task of washing their feet. We have shoes today. And even with shoes, we sometimes still come in with dirty feet. But you can imagine if they all they had set was sandals and they were outside, they did not have paved ground. They would come in incredibly dirty. Well, when Jesus and the disciples arrived, there was no one. There was no servant there. So what now? Well, this is where Jesus shows them the example of a servant. He took his clothes off, he stripped down to his loincloth, and wrapped a long towel around his waist. And that would have been in the, the, the manner and the garb of an oriental slave. Jesus was doing something incredibly shocking. We've all heard these foot washing things, and we, we've maybe come to this text before, but what we don't see is, here, the most important person in the world humbles himself to be the lowest person in the room, the slave. And as he knelt down one by one, he began to wash the dirty feet of the people that John had already told us. He knew that they were going to abandon him that night, including the man that was even going to betray him. Could you imagine Jesus washing Judas's feet? Now, after he finished washing the disciples' feet at the end of John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, if you look there, John tells us that he looked at the disciples and he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You might be saying to yourself, well, what does this mean? Especially as it relates to the diaconate. In a word, one word, everything. Everything. Do you remember what the Gospels say? I know you guys are going through the book of John. You may not have quite reached this part yet. But the Gospels tell us what the disciples were talking about as they came to the upper room. You may think, wow, I wonder if they're talking about the doctrines of grace. Or or what, what are the implications of the new covenant in Christ Jesus that he talks about? Right? 
That wasn't their discussion, I'm sorry to say. They were talking about which one of them was the greatest. And it's against that background that Jesus here demonstrates the real greatness of a leader. And that is to be a servant. To be a servant. And this is really where we see the rest of the New Testament pick it up. Because as John alluded to earlier, and I know he preached on this last year, we see the foundation of the diaconate in the book of Acts. So we move forward from John to Acts chapter 6. We can see that the early church is growing by leaps and bounds, but, but as they, they hit a speed bump in chapter 6. And it comes up in the administration of mercy ministry. Acts 6, verse 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, among you, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's an important distinction that's being made here in this passage. And John touched on it earlier when he was was, uh, explaining the office of deacon. But the elders, and this would be representative of the apostles in, in the context, were called to teach and to pray. That's a simple job summary description of a pastor, is to teach and pray. And practically, the deacons here were being raised up so that they could attend to the practical needs of the congregation. Now, both of those things are Christ-like functions. Jesus both taught and cared for people. He healed them. He went to their sick beds. He showed grace and mercy to them. And so these, these functions overlap. Elders need to have the heart of a deacon, to be willing to serve in this way. And frankly, the the elders must have all of the same qualifications as a deacon. And we see deacons here, like Stephen, also being able to preach and evangelize as well. But the primary distinction here is that the deacons are called to manifest the practical love of Jesus Christ in the congregation. Essentially, they were called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, as I say this, I just want to be clear. For all of us in the congregation, it's not just Jonathan. It's all of us. But Jonathan, if he is to be a deacon, and if you are to have other deacons, they are to lead in this. They are to set an example. They are to adjudicate and administer the practical concerns of the church to free up the elders to do what their primary role is to do, to teach 
preach and pray. I love uh, the Nine Marks Ministries and their description. They, they've done a lot of work, and some of you have read some of their material on church government. But they describe the role of the diaconate as shock absorbers and servants. Now, I don't know what you know about cars, and what I know about cars is somewhat limited, but shock absorbers are not optional equipment. And I would say that especially in Barbados, as I have experienced. The car's suspension enables it to endure the bumps and travels of the road. And I've often thought that this would be a great place to start a shock absorber business, because you would always have business. But if you think about it, without shock absorbers, there are not very comfortable rides. Likewise, if there are no deacons, all the responsibilities of running the church fall on the shoulders of the elders who carry the load. Now, a car can can go forward without shock absorbers, but it can't go forward for very long. Without the shock absorbers, parts start to, to grind together and fall apart. Greatly shortens the lifespan of a vehicle. When a church has deacons... It helps the pastors and the elders to focus on prayer and teaching the word. That's our primary capacity. It's not that the elders can't do diaconal roles or that they are beneath them. Jesus very clearly showed that that's not true. But it's like driving a car without shock absorbers. It doesn't work nearly as well if the elder does all the work in the church. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, for the first seven or so years of my ministry, there were no deacons in our church. And in the last uh, three years, four years, we've raised up four deacons. And it has made a tremendous impact on what we can do in the church. But don't go by our example in Toronto. Look at the scriptures. Look at what it says. The kicker here is in verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. You see, when the diaconate is established, when the example of Christ is demonstrated, when the love of Christ is led and modeled, what is the result? Church growth. Now, this isn't a recipe for success. We just shouldn't just go out and raise up as many men as we possibly can, so then we'll grow. But if God gifts the church with godly men, those are gifts that help to extend and indeed uh, free up elders and to, to go and to preach and teach and be even more useful. And that is an expectation. It just makes sense that if there's more opportunity for gospel preaching, there's more opportunity for discipleship and growth. You're blessed to have two services on a Sunday. Sometimes culturally, that's something in Canada that's disappearing. But it is a blessing because you get more instruction and more discipleship. Instead of 52 sermons a year, you get 104 Think about that as that adds up over the years. But that is hard to do and to balance all the other requirements of ministry. And it's tiring. Your pastor experiences tiredness and fatigue. You can extend his life. You can give him more hundreds of thousands of kilometers on his odometer if the Lord provides deacons. It's a good thing. It's beautiful. 
people see, too, when there are those who are besides the pastor leading in loving the people that come into the congregation of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus Christ is something that is truly compelling. I'm going to be doing a series beginning tonight in the book of Acts. And this focus is on the work of evangelism. And the power that goes beyond, behind evangelism is the love of Jesus Christ. Because we can preach and teach, but one of the things that's really important for people is to see the love of Jesus Christ in the local body of the, of the church. And that is the, the beauty of this. And this is what Jesus says, you'll know that they are my people by the way that they love one another. Deacons ought to help us to love one another better. Deacons lead in loving. It's beautiful when you see servants in the church leading. Now, again, if, if we have believers in the church, these sorts of things should be happening anyway. But as we have the special, if we have a man that is specially called to lead in this way and to lay down an example in the church, that is a great opportunity when when you see men notice and welcome and serve the poor or the forgotten. They look for people that aren't speaking to somebody after the service and go to them and engage with them. Who labor over financial spreadsheets. I used to teach Microsoft Excel and, and I know what's involved in that, but I absolutely detest bookkeeping. And I'm so thankful the Lord has given me uh, deacons because I remember the budgetary pro- planning process before it and it was a nightmare for me. And it, it stressed me out for weeks and months ahead of the, the annual meeting. And yes, I still think about that. and I still look at those things, but I don't bear the full responsibility. And that enables me to be able to keep on track and keep on focus throughout the year. And that's laboring over a spreadsheet is a Christ-like purpose. You're serving Jesus Christ as you crunch those numbers and as you try and reconcile the budgets and doing that. It's not the the most uh, flashy work. And a lot of it happens behind the scenes. And a lot of it does not come with human thanks. But we'll talk about the deacon's reward in a little bit. But in doing those things, we are enfleshing Jesus Christ. Jesus served. Jesus was concerned with the people that were with him. He fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. And Jesus' love is what attracted people to him. When a church is properly functioning, it is truly a beautiful thing. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist says. It is a blessing to come into the people of uh, come together with the people of God. And I rejoice to be with you this morning. It's a delight. I know you, I pray for you. We talk about the church every week in our elders' meetings. We seek to serve and encourage. And it's a beautiful thing. But the church is beautiful because it is something that is unlike what we find anywhere else. Because the love of Jesus is here. And it's a love that is free. It's not based on what you can do or what you can give. It's an amazing love. It's this self-sacrificial love that Jesus himself demonstrates. In the world, we have this sort of tit-for-tat kind of relationship. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You mow my lawn, I'll, I'll water your, your, your flocks. I don't know. Um, in any case, we have this sort of transactional relationship. 
And it's always, you always keep a mental tally. Well, I did this for you, and so you owe me. Right? That's how business is conducted. But the result of the gospel is that God has overwhelmed our bank accounts with grace. And that enables us to show grace to those who do not deserve it. We have been shown grace so we can show grace and we can show love. And it is a wonderful love. The agape love of Jesus Christ is a self-sacrificial love grounded in the example of Jesus. It's more beautiful than the most beautiful sunset that you've ever seen. Saw it beautiful yesterday in Pebbles Beach. There's nothing more beautiful than the love of Jesus Christ. It's more heartwarming than any emotional movie you will ever see. It's gorgeous. And that's what we want to seek in the body of Christ to exemplify and, and to, to indeed imbue the congregation with the love of Jesus Christ. And we need those who are leaders in this. That is, the officers of the church. Well, we've looked a little bit at the, the background to the diaconate. Let's look more specifically in this passage before us at the three main biblical qualities for a servant deacon. What's required? Well, I'm going to put it pretty simply. Verse 8 says that he needs to be a man of good moral character. Verse 9 says that he needs to be orthodox. And verse 10 says that he needs to have a desire for service. Let me just read that for you again. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must tell the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded in all things. Well, let's look first of all then at the good moral character we see there in verse 8. Now, again, this teaching comes in the context of the teaching to the church of what we should expect in terms of elders. You see that there's a connection there. In verse 8, it says, likewise. This means we're following on here. This adverb connects us to the teaching that is there before. This is where grammar matters, right? You English teachers, you know this. Grammar matters, likewise. And what's interesting is how much overlap, as we've said, there are between these two officers of elder and deacon. First, there is dignity. Now, that's not exactly what you see in, it said earlier in the elder section, but how can you be dignified if you're not well thought of by outsiders? That is dignity. I recall one of the questions one of the elders asked John back in 2016 when he had his ordination council. I thought it was a really good question, and I've added it now to the questions that I ask. But he asked him, John, what's your reputation with your banker, your employer, and your neighbor? We are called to have a dignified reputation and relationship with outsiders. This was an older gentleman and probably didn't know that that most of our transactions with our banker happened to be a computer. But his emphasis was right. What is your public relationship with others in the world? You can't have a guy who has a reputation as dishonest or double-tongued, as the passage says. You can't be a drunkard. It's just nonsensical. That's not Jesus. Jesus 
was not like that, and Jesus told it like it is. Might not like what Jesus said, but he was plain spoken. He spoke the truth in love. He didn't flatter anyone. He told the truth even when it hurts. This is Christian. Not politically correct, not brutally callous either. He spoke the truth in love. It's interesting how the treasurer of the church at this time was Judas. He was, in effect, serving as a deacon, but he was double-tongued. He spoke behind Jesus' back and plotted against him. He rebuked the woman when she poured out the the jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. And his concern was political and monetary. Judas forms an interesting contrast to Jesus. It's basic. A deacon needs to be a Christian. Someone's not a Christian, they're in danger of perishing. And deacons need to be able to speak. They need to be able to hold accountable. They need to be able to discern. They need to be plain spoken with people. Can you imagine a deacon that's a gossip? It doesn't work. But a deacon that's double-tongued or two-faced doesn't work either. You've got to speak straightforwardly, Jonathan. One of my favorite Proverbs that speaks to the kind of relationship we ought to speak to, to, to know in the body of Christ is, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We live in the age of Facebook likes and loves. But the scriptures teach that true friendship is speaking the truth even when others don't want to hear it because that's what they actually need to hear. Not on the basis of our own moral superiority, but exactly because we're all morally inferior. We're all morally dependent upon Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Since deacons are on the front lines of ministry and representing the church in mercy ministry efforts, they need to both oversee financial assistance to people and to discern whether the people seeking such help are in fact disingenuous and dishonest. If you look a little few, few chapters over in 1 Timothy 5, you'll see that there are instructions given to the deacons about mercy ministry. And there's discernment and prudence that needs to be exercised. We won't look at it in specific, but I would encourage you to read chapter 5 on the ministry to widows. Paul instructs deacons not to give mercy ministry to those who are idle, or gossips, or busybodies. How do you do that? Well, to some extent, you need to be able to say graciously, but firmly, you're not qualified for this assistance. Because you're not willing to work. Or because you are pursuing a sinful lifestyle. That takes a certain courage. A certain plain spokenness, a certain grace. So deacons need to be morally above reproach, and they need to be clear. Their yes needs to be yes, and their no needs to be no. They need to be dignified and respectable. And again, there's overlap here with the elders in their qualification. This is is like as he goes through the diaconal qualifications here in verse eight. This likewise is like a rearview mirror. A deacon is morally like an elder. He is also not to be a drunkard. He is also not greedy for dishonest gain. Remember, Paul even thought to work bivocationally as a tent maker to avoid the charges that he knew would come. Deacons are stewards of the church's finances. They are to be above reproach financially, not lovers of money. 
Again, recall Judas, the skimmer. He stole from the purse of Jesus Christ himself. Makes his betrayal so much more heinous. And the reason why he expressed himself and he he spoke up in the church was not to be plain spoken, but be two-faced. When he rebuked the woman for pouring the, 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 the oil over Jesus' feet, John tells us the real reason. John 12, verse 6 says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having been put in charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Deacons must not follow Judas' example. There must be clearly moral men who have financial integrity. They must also have moral integrity in the way that they manage their homes. This again is an overlap with the elder qualification in verse 5 of our passage above. And you can compare it with what he says here in verse 12. Let each deacon, the deacons each be the, the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, in some sense, common sense. It's a regular principle. Our children have yearned for a pet. And we have started, we started with fish. And we, we felt that if they were faithful in caring for the fish, we could maybe, maybe elevate to another animal. And although there have been several holocausts with our fish and replacements, they showed a certain faithfulness with that. And they now have a cat. That's the next level. And they're yearning now for a dog. We'll see. But this is common sense, right? You're not going to entrust the life of something to someone if you are in, in concerned that they will not respect it. And so same thing in the body of Christ. If you manage a household well, it's a good foundation for managing a church well. And that's why when we examine officers, we look and we talk with their wives. You see the standard that is being laid out for us here in CRBC. We talk about the moral integrity in our society. How about you this morning, if you're a non-Christian? Do you remember your last job interview? Did they ask to talk to your spouse? Did they ask to talk to your girlfriend? Or was that even, would that even be done? In, in Canada, that would probably generate a lawsuit. Right? But that's not the standard. Right? Our standard is not about our own our own privacy. When we become leaders in the church, there's a sense where we yield some of that privacy because we're seeking to live transparently. And we will disappoint you. We will sin. But you need to have those in leadership that live transparently and are accountable. You see, even though there are hypocrites in leadership in the church, the Bible does not permit them. And the responsibility of a a well-functioning church is to hold those who are in leadership accountable to the standards that are laid out here. And so if there is a hypocrite being tolerated in the pulpit, and it's known in the congregation, both the hypocrite is guilty and so is the congregation. We want to emphasize that this is something, again, it's not Pastor John and myself that are indeed installing Jonathan. This is an act of the corporate church of Jesus Christ. And we all bear a responsibility. We are bound covenantally to each other. 
When you join the church, it's not like joining a, a, a music group or a band or a soccer team. There are indeed covenantal commitments that we make to each other. We are our brother and our sister's keeper. Right? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that is yes. That's true in the church for elders and deacons in relationship to the congregation, also for the congregation to the elders and deacons. There's an accountability. Now, I know this isn't the case in Jonathan's case, at least now. Um, but I want to just say one word about single deacons. This statement that is in this passage here, that he has to be husband of one wife, mean that he has to be married? Well, I know that there are some good men that disagree. But I don't believe that it does disqualify my man if he's not married. And here's why. I think it would contradict Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35 about the distinct advantage of being single in serving the Lord. I realize that 1 Corinthians is given in a difficult context of a difficult situation. But nevertheless, it is a problem if you say you must be married to serve. Paul doesn't say, and I think this is important, he doesn't say you must be married. He says that there, you must be a one-wife man. And that's a different point. So I believe that singleness does not disqualify men for service. Because if you think about it, if you require for a man to be married, you must also say that a deacon must have children. Right? If you read verse 12... That can't be the, what he's saying. Is, that, is, is it again what Paul is saying? Is he saying it's not one child? It's children. That's a long time. So what's going on? Can you only be a deacon if you're married with two or more children? No. Paul's speaking prototypically here. If a man is married, he must manage his household well. He must be a one-woman man. And his children must be respectful of his leadership and authority. That's the same as it is for an elder. And just remember this. Who are the greatest evangelists in the New Testament? John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul. All three of whom were single. It's possible that Paul was married before. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he could have been married. But it's clear in his statement in Corinthians, there was a part of his ministry where he was single. I think that's an important corrective to us about how we view people in the congregation. Singles are not second class. They're servants of Jesus Christ. And they have certain advantages that married people don't. Just as married people have certain advantages that single people don't. And we function together in the body. And we love one another. And we serve one another. I wish I had more time to go into verse 11 here. This is a verse of some controversy. Verse 11 says, Verse 11 says, Their wives, Sharina, their wives, <laughs> likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. I preached through 1 Timothy some time ago. Um, you can look it up on the, the Toronto website, but. I do want to say a couple things about the wives here. I think he's talking about the wives of deacons if they are married here. What he's saying is that they also must be faithful. 
Sharina too, you must be faithful if the Lord is to call your husband to serve in the congregation here. You must also have a sober mind. You need to be dignified and not a gossip or a slanderer. And you must be faithful. Faithful in attendance to the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, again, when was the last time you were interviewed for a position where your wife was was interviewed about you and then interviewed about her character as well? See, the standards in gospel ministry are much higher than they are in the world. And again, it's not possible to qualify yourself either as a deacon or a deacon's wife without the work of Jesus Christ. We're not called to be perfect. We are called to be humble, and we are called to be servants. So it's vital to see that a deacon and his wife have to have moral integrity. That a deacon has to have leadership in the home. Be dignified and exemplify a Christian morality, not just in theory, but in practice. And to reflect Jesus in his moral integrity, leadership, and service. And to have faithful wives who are believers. But a second thing that that is brought out in verse 9 is that they must also be orthodox believers. They must know and understand the gospel. As it says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now we make the distinction that one of the major differences between elders and deacons is their ability to teach. But as we see in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen was both a deacon and a teacher. So while being able to teach and preach is not required in the church, as a deacon, it certainly doesn't disqualify him. Some overlap is fine. I know our brother has preached for you. But deacons aren't just elders in training. Some people view the diaconate as you know, a stepping stone to the, the eldership. And it may be in certain cases. I was a deacon before I was a pastor. But it isn't necessarily so. They are men of integrity, and they may or may not engage in teaching. They may or may not become elders. But whichever way you look at it, they are an essential, vital part of a church's functioning, and essential for the church to grow. The really key thing in verse 9 is that deacons must know and believe the gospel. Paul uses this word mystery, mysterion. He uses it frequently in his Pauline writings. And it refers to the truth that was previously hidden, but is now manifested. And we know that to be the truth of Jesus Christ. The mystery of saint, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And the new, the the mystery that is revealed is the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It encompasses the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we see that. Or of the indwelling of Christ in believers. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. And the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Of the saving gospel. Of lawlessness. And of the rapture of the church. All of these things is speaking of the, the mystery of the gospel. How Jesus Christ came down to the world to establish his church. To sustain it. And to take it up again with him. So the faith is the content of the New Testament revealed truth. A deacon must believe it, must hold it with a clear conscience. And that is a conscience that does not always accuse him. Not merely enough to believe the truth, we've also got to live it. And the stronger the theological and biblical knowledge and faith and obedience, the stronger the affirmation 
of our conscience. So Jonathan and others who lead must be given to studying and growing in the scriptures. And the conscience is a human faculty given by God to every person, which is designed to warn people when they have violated God's moral law. It either accuses or excuses. It either produces guilt, shame, fear, remorse, and despair over sin, or it grants us assurance, peace, and joy due to righteousness. The deacon who has a clear conscience demonstrates these. So not, not, not only does a, a deacon need to be morally pure, he also needs to have a desire to serve. And that's what we see in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Let them also be trusted first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. We discuss, we, can, we discuss this under the category of, of elders as well. The beginning of the chapter opens with, it is good for a young man to desire the office of overseer. There needs to be a desire on the behalf of the individual to serve. And you, you heard this morning that Jonathan, as he looked and he saw the burden on Pastor John, he has a desire to serve in the body of Christ. And that's a good thing. And a willingness to be tested. We need our men to be tested. We don't just put men into the position of deacon. Jonathan has served, and he's been part of the leadership training group, and he's been discipled by Pastor John, and he's served as treasurer of this congregation. He has shown through his good testimony throughout these periods of time that from the elder's perspective, he has passed the test. He has shown his faithfulness in this way. And in some sense, as a church's treasurer and even uh, one of the the, the first here to serve and open up the church, he is demonstrating those gifts. And he's already functioning, in some sense, as a deacon would be expected to. Finally, as we look at this, as we consider the, 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 the roles of the deacon, that they are to be morally upright, dignified, that they are to indeed have orthodox teaching and have a desire to serve, we see a, a glorious little coda added on there in verse 13. Paul speaks to the whole issue of the reward of the deacon because this service is a blessing. It's a blessing to the church, but it's also a blessing to the one who serves. Look at what it says there, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What's going on here? Well, if you remember Jesus' words, that the last shall be first, that's essentially what Paul is echoing here. Paul is saying that those who serve in this quiet, behind-the-scenes work of deacons will be rewarded in heaven with high standing. Though they may be last in the eyes of the world, and frankly, even some in the church, sadly, Though they may be last in these, they will be made first. They will be given high standing. It is our goal as a Christian to come before God and for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what motivates the deacon. That is what they are to seek. They're man pleasers, it's over. They can't please men and they can't please themselves. They're called to be a servant of the servant king. To live for his pleasure and his pleasure alone. And there's another benefit that comes in service. He goes on to say that they will have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
They'll have great assurance and courage and boldness and freedom. And we see this pattern happening all the time in the Christian church. Those who most give themselves away and and the most die to themselves, their own desires, their own agendas, they are the ones who live with the most freedom and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. It seems counterintuitive. But this is the gospel message. This is what Jesus himself exemplified. That our joy and our satisfaction, our fulfillment, doesn't come in pursuing our own ends. It comes in pursuing God's. Because he created us. He made us. He knows what we're to do. He, He created us to worship and to serve and to love and to pour ourselves out. He didn't create us to create a family with a with a house and a big house and cars and cottages and big holidays and all of those kinds of things. That's not what we're created for. We're created to serve and to glorify Him, to enjoy Him. And one of the ways that we serve and glorify God is in the Church of Jesus Christ, deacon or not. This is one of the great opportunities you have to fulfill what God has given to you, to exercise the gifts that God has given to you. So as these deacons give themselves away in washing the feet of the brethren, in serving this church in mercy ministry, they attain high standing and great confidence in the Lord. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that no one would give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples in his name would be forgotten. God watches. Everyone who gives even a a cup of cold water to his disciples would be rewarded. And that's what deacons do, essentially. They are about that ministry of mercy to Christ's sheep who may be overlooked by others in the midst of our own hustle and bustle. And this is something I think is important for us again as we include all of the congregation here. Because a deacon here, we're laying out the duty of the deacon. But what the deacon does by duty, we all ought to do by love. The deacons lead. That is their deed. And just as holiness is necessary for the witness of the world, remember what Jesus says in John 13, that as the world sees us love one another in this way, the world will know that we are His, that we are Jesus Christ's disciples. And so the work of the deacon, like the work of the elder, is vital for the evangelistic witness of the church. This is something that is beyond just an ability to articulate the the gospel in a winsome and and persuasive way. It's more than studying books and going out there. It's showing the love of Jesus. You can have great intellectual knowledge. And this is one of the dangers in the Reformed faith. Sometimes when I see videos on the internet of Reformed apologists, you know, having these encounters on the street, a lot of the time they just seem angry. And they don't see the love of Jesus Christ. That's what's ultimately what we're trying to communicate. We can win all kinds of battles intellectually with unbelievers and lose the war. What wins the war, what changes everything, is the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need in the church of Jesus Christ. Not just by the deacons, but by all to demonstrate that this is the truth. That we are to live transparently and morally and justly and truly with one another. Because that is beautiful. And we will sin against each other. We are sinners. 
Your leaders will disappoint you from time to time. But if the love of Jesus Christ is present in the congregation, sin can be addressed. Repentance can be seen. And the glory of the gospel can be displayed in the love of Jesus Christ. May we all know more of this love. May we exercise this love. And may God give us discernment and wisdom as we consider our brother to serve in this office of love, practical love, in the congregation of Jesus Christ.